Please join me as we read our scripture, Hosea 11, verses 1 through 9. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I call my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of love, with the bands of kindness, and became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Well, a few weeks ago, if you remember, which I'm expecting you all to, uh, I reminded you that we're not one call away from a major change in life. My point was that as a pastor to prepare you and, and to ready us for the, the temporal nature of life, the, um, the precarious nature. Things happen. And temptations rise within us and we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God. We're tempted to actually doubt the love of God when trial and adversity and suffering comes in. And we're just not one call away. Well, as if you remember here in the church, you know that Carol and I received that call and maybe Thursday at 3.38, I think it was, in the afternoon, and if you don't know, my daughter Katie would call me from uh, being, or driving to the hospital. She had had a, uh, her daughter, Anna Caroline, my granddaughter, had a suspicious blood work, which uh, turned out to be, as you know, diagnosed as leukemia. Now, within the span of 24 hours, uh, we went from, yeah, things being chaotically normal, but, but with the emphasis on normal to going to Wake Med, going to UNC Children's Hospital, uh, diagnosis being confirmed, surgery being performed, chemo being administered, all within 24 hours. Things do change very, very fast, and it has been a challenging number of days, as you can imagine, for Brandon and Katie and for the entire family. Um, it's been very, very challenging and yet I'm reminded that it is the very love of God that will sustain us. It's interesting. That's what we tend to question, but it's that which sustains us. I don't think it's by chance that we're looking at Hosea today. I know that I cannot get you into my mind to think about the amazing love that God has for us as expressed in the book. It, it's kind of a reckless love, if you will. It, 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 it's scandalous, for sure. 
the kind of love that God would have for us in, in the midst of who we are. And it's that which has been upholding us. Uh, we have been loved by you, the church. It has been amazing to, to know the presence of God to keep us safe in the midst of very uncertain times. And so thank you for that. But l- let me just back up to Hosea for a minute. You know, we're doing this series, a, a brief series on some of these prophets uh, because Romans, frankly, is long. And Romans is kind of dense, and I think a periodic removal of the book and, and recalibrate. The same message is preached, the same saving message of the gospel. It's a different part of the Bible, different time, different author, different place, but it is that same message of, of saving grace. The, the minor prophets are not minor because of their lesser importance, just simply lesser in size. Now, uh, the 12, there's 12 minor prophets. In fact, in Jesus' day, they were often called the 12. They were seen kind of as a book. And, and, and there's really two words that describe these prophets that we'll be looking at, and that is judgment and mercy. It's judgment and mercy. And, and the reason that they're known that way is because they are filled with judgment. God speaks clear warnings to people who continue in sin. There's a foreboding nature to these 12 prophets. Some have called them the dark continent of Scripture because they contain some very heavy language. And yet you'd you'd be blind to miss the amazing mercy and the offer of restoration and hope that is given to, to us in these pages. Just absolutely kind of God to give us these. Now these prophets, I want you to hear them. They're functioning as preachers. They're the voice of God bringing forth a word of warning over the nature of sin and an offer of hope in the restoration of God. You know, there are 12 prophets and there are 12 apostles, and they really do parallel each other because they're both declaring the greatness of God and our need to be reconciled to him, that our joy and our satisfaction are bound up in how we are related to God. Now, this book, Hosea, and, and, and this is going to be a probably maybe more difficult to take notes on, so I'll happy to send you the manuscript if you want it, so you can just sit back and listen. But the book of Hosea is unique in this way, that he's the first prophet recorded, the first minor prophet, not, not chronologically, but canonically. In other words, where it is in the Bible. It's the first one. And, and there's a reason for this. It's kind of the gatekeeper of the prophets. You know, you come out of Daniel, and Daniel has this high transcendent picture of God's glory, his unfathomable distant nature, and, and then you have Hosea. And Hosea is picturing God as a passionate lover, a passionate lover of us. And, and we always want to keep those two together. We never want to see God's sovereignty is so high and distant without seeing his absolute love for his people. But he's also unique in the sense that he's the longest, at least one of the longest, Zechariah, perhaps a bit longer, but he's one of the longest. He's one of the earliest prophets in the 8th century. He preached to the northern kingdom. If you remember Solomon the king, after his kingdom busted in half, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. He was the, the northern kingdom, the last one to preach before Assyria, a great enemy to the north, conquered and destroyed the nation. Little is known about him, little is known, other than he's the son of Beri, and 
He ministered for 50 years during the reign of Jeroboam. As I said, a wicked, wicked king. The times that he ministered in were extremely prosperous, and yet culturally it was in a downward spiral. Probably the most intriguing thing you'll read about him if you read the book is he has a unique marriage. He married a woman by the name of Gomer. I don't think she's in the top ten list of popular girls' names that you can choose from if you are pregnant with a girl. Uh, but, but he married this woman named Gomer. And immediately you see from the first chapter uh, something very, very odd. Let, let me read to you from chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go to take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is a unique picture here that God is calling Hosea to marry this woman Gomer. Now, is she a practicing prostitute when he married her? Well, some think so, and it, and it may in fact be. Uh, the other option is that it's kind of a prophetic anticipation. He marries Gomer, has three children, and then she moves into prostitution. In other words, it's like saying, God saying, Hosea, listen, I want you to go and marry Gomer. I want you to be a faithful man, though she is going to be a faithless woman. I want you to love her intimately, and yet she'll disgrace your love. Well, what's going on here? Well, I, I think God is using this historical marriage to paint a picture of his love for unfaithful Israel. It's a prophetic symbol. You heard it in verse 2. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land. This is important. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I mean, this is why I said it's a reckless love. It's a, it's a scandalous love. Here, God draws the people of Israel out of Egypt. He brings them to Sinai, and he has a covenantal ceremony there. That's what the Ten Commandments, he's making a covenant to them. He's loving them. He's adopting them. He's taking them as his own. And he gives them promises. And he leads them to the promised land filled with all kinds of good things. And Israel takes all those things and offers it to Canaanite gods. Forsakes the Lord. Turns their back. Betrays his love. Here's what the, the, the scandal of his love is that after Gomer moves into adultery, God tells Hosea to go buy her back. You find this in the third chapter. He says, And the Lord said to me, Go again. Which kind of infers that he had been appealing to her. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, there you see the comparison, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins over God. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be with you. Can you imagine the scene? I mean, let's just get real, real practical here. 
After the third child, she moves into harlotry. She's getting paid for sex. The story goes that the last man that she is with tires of her. She ends up having to pay him to take care of her. He gets tired of her and sells her into a sex slave trade. Now, how that would be done would that she'd be brought in front of the bidders and she'd be stripped naked so you can see what you're getting. And there's Hosea among the bidders bidding for her. Now, the normal price of the slave was 30 shekels. He got her with 15 and a bushel of barley. Two things that I take away from that. One would be that she's not like she was. She is shown thanks for your patience. She's shown the marks of whoredom is what she's shown. Nobody's going to pay 30 shekels for her. But, but Hosea does. He pays 15, but he doesn't pay more. Why? He doesn't have any more. He's bringing in kind. He's bringing whatever he can. This is a picture of the incredible love of God to buy back a people who have chased other lovers. One author said this is really the second greatest love story. The first greatest love story is, of course, God so loving the world that he gave his only son, that he put forth Christ to bear our sin and to bear our punishment over sin. He bought us back. This is the second greatest love story because it's a prequel. It's a foreshadowing. We see the gospel here that would come in perfect color and relief when Christ would come on the scene. Now, before I go on to kind of explain the, the flow of the book, can we just stop and recognize that, do you see the cost of ministry, at least for Hosea? I mean, do you see the cost of ministry? I, I was reminded of Paul when he said that uh, we have this ministry according to the mercy of God so that we don't lose heart. In other words, ministry is costly. And Paul surely could speak to that when he says this in 2 Corinthians, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day, adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. You know, if you're a, a pastor or a leader or one aspiring to be a pastor or a leader, seeking to lead others, you need to know that there's a cost. Now, obviously, the cost that Hosea paid was unique. It was unique in that time. But there's always a cost. It puts a different spin on wanting to be leading in ministry. This is why the church, you need to pray for your leaders. As we're going to see in just a few moments, the failure of their leaders was in part responsible for the failure of these people. You need to pray for the leaders that they would see that those costs are by the mercy of God so that we don't lose heart. But I would also say, can you, can you appreciate this kind of love? If you're here and perhaps you're looking at Christianity, does this change your view of God? Do you see this love differently? Is God in a very narrow slice of understanding in your mind? Perhaps you've just seen him as just a judge or maybe just cold and distant. Does this change 
your view of him. Does this let you see his love? Because it's the power of this love that gives us hope to come to him. I mean, many of you feel, you feel broken and dirty, and you can't come to him. But it's, it's this love that works as a draw to himself, that yes, you can. I know many of you feel you've written yourself off. And it's not you cleaning up yourself, and as a reward you get his love. It's his love is drawing you to himself. You're not good enough, smart enough, holy enough, or whatever. You need to read the book. Uh, because the book is intended to take you who feel so unworthy, you'll never measure up. And God's saying, I will measure to you. I will come to you. When you read Hosea, that's the picture I want you to have of God. Now, when you read it, the outline is confusing. There's no doubt about it. When you read these prophets, they're filled with poetry. We're not poets anymore. We don't read poetry by and large, and so it's difficult to understand. They use names and places you're not familiar with. They have metaphors that you're... There's no clear structure to the book. But, but I, I would encourage you to fight through it. It's only 14 chapters long. And let me give you a simple outline that may help you. Uh, chapters 1 to 3 are more historical in nature. They're talking about this marriage that Hosea marries Gomer in, and then she goes into adultery. Chapter 2 is a little bit prophetic, but it speaks about her adultery and, and how God threatens her with judgment and warns her as a loving father, and then, and then how he buys her back and restores her. And then in chapters 4 to 14, it moves into really a collection of sayings. And really, all the prophets are similar this way. Uh, they all kind of revolve around three things. Uh, one is going to be the identification of sin. God will bring to us the nature of our sin. He's going to point it out to us, not rubbing our noses in it, but to show us what we're choosing beyond him. This is what you're lusting after. So he shows us the nature of our sin, and and then he gives us warnings. But I'm going to put a spin on these warnings that he gives us. He threatens judgment, but then he gives this offer of restoration and grace. So those are the three buckets we're going to look at. There's going to be the identification of sin. There's going to be the warnings. And people, we we must heed the warnings. And and then there's this restoration, this offer that, that is just incredible from a lover that we have spurned, an offer of restoration that he'll buy us back. Uh, So so beginning in chapter 4, you see the identification of sin. And and, and if you want to turn there with me, chapter 4, I'll read verses 1 and 2. These are, he really catalogs the sins of the nations, and and I'm going to, I'm going to put them into three. So this is under the first point. There's just three little sub points. The three subpoints are the types of sins that he identifies. You're going to see these revolve over and over through the book. Number one will be this lack of knowledge. This lack of knowledge leads to ungodliness. And you see this in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness. There is no steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, Stealing, committing adultery. They break all bonds. They, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So he's kind of looking at the nation and he's cataloging these sins. This is what your nation is producing. It's moving from insolent words to thievery to deceit, even to murder. I mean, look around at the nation. 
Look at the fruit of a life that has forsaken the Lord. This is what you have. Now notice that it's the lack of knowledge that leads to ungodliness. But that word for knowledge, that Hebrew word for knowledge, isn't an intellectual knowledge. It's more of a personal knowledge. It's knowing someone personally. It's the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. So these people had a clear knowledge of God, or they knew about God, but they didn't know him. It's kind of like you know, but you don't do. You know, if you know something that you're supposed to do, but you don't do it, then it could be said, do you really know it? Because you're not doing it. But not just was there a lack of knowledge leading to ungodliness, there was also a lack of truth leading to spiritual blindness. In chapter 5 is where he goes after the leaders, particularly the priests and the religious leaders. And he says this, Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king. So he's going after the spiritual leadership and the political leadership. And he says, Judgment is upon you, for you have been a snare. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. See, the, the leadership of Israel had failed to teach them the truth about God. Uh, they, they catered to the itching ears of the people. They lowered the bar. They didn't express to the people. They didn't put forth the charge to the people, the holiness of God, to live right before him, to live in light of the covenant. This is the Lord God who has saved you. But they softened it. They made it more palatable. They domesticated God. People were happy. They're happy. But God has this charge against them, that they lack the truth. And so they have spiritual blindness. The third indictment is that they lack love. They've forsaken God. They've committed idolatry. Now, this is really the, this is really the ground zero of the prophets, if you will, the charge that they have apostatized, that they've forsaken God, they've turned away from Him. And, and, and they have committed idolatry. But oftentimes in the prophets, idolatry is referenced as adultery, spiritual adultery. And the reason it's often referenced that way is because idolatry often leads, that spiritual adultery often leads to sexual adultery, leads to promiscuity, leads to immorality. He condemns them, saying in Hosea 2.13, he says, I'll punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after lovers and forgot me. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They have left their God to play the whore. For Israel has forgotten his maker. This is really the root of all sins. When you forsake God, then anything becomes sensible. And you move into areas that you just can't imagine moving into. Uh, do you see this as the nature of sin? When you look at your own life, do you see this as the nature of sin? It, it's not about breaking rules, I want you to understand. I catalog these sins under three, under three headings. It's not about breaking the rules. It's about breaking faith with God. God has displayed his love in delivering the people of Israel, and they forsake his love, and they went after other gods. Th th this is really 
This is where religion is love. This is what one author said. He said, all religion is in effect love. Faith is thankful acceptance and thankfulness is an expression of love. Repentance is love mourning. Yearning for holiness is love seeking. Obedience is love pleasing. Self-denial is the mortification of self-love. Sobriety is the curtailing of carnal love. If love is not activated and kept working, it will atrophy. The affections of a man or a woman cannot be idle. If they do not go out to God, they leak out to worldly things. When our love for God decreases, the love for the world grows in our soul. Who do you love most? What do you love most? I mean, one way of answering this question is to identify what you fear losing most. What do you worry most about losing? That might be, that might be an object of, of inordinate love. Perhaps you fear a life with a relationship. You, you, you can't bear the idea of remaining unmarried. Or perhaps it's a health crisis. You can't bear the idea that somebody would be taken from you. Or maybe it's a financial threat. You are worried over your financial position, and it occupies your mind. You, you fear losing a certain lifestyle, or perhaps a place in a community. If you're a Christian, how do you hear this? Do you see the warnings here just applicable to those outside the church walls? When you hear about the lack of of knowledge of God leading to wickedness and the lack of truth leading to blindness and the lack of love leading to idolatry? Do you think it's just for them? Do you and I pass over these sins too quickly? Do we say, well, no, I'm under grace now. But remember what Paul said last week in Romans 6. Shall we sin that grace might abound? By no means may it ever be. Do you quickly pass over these sins in your own life? He's speaking to the people of God. That's us. We don't want to too quickly go out and implicate the world for that which we may in fact be guilty of ourselves. If you're not a, if you're not a Christian here, but you're just thinking about the faith, you're, you're coming to ask transcendent questions, that's a great place to be, to be asking, why am I here? What is this all about? What is life about? Am I just here? I've talked to a, a number of, of uh, adults under 30, and it's interesting to see you're out of college, you're pursuing life, you're making money, you're entering your career, and you begin having these questions like, is this all it is? Is, is there not something more? Well, I would ask you, how do you think God would consider your sins? How do you think God looks at your life? Uh, one way to find out would be, how do you feel when people sin against you? Uh, how do you feel when some injustice is committed to you? Do you just let it go off? Do you just forgive it? Do you just move on? Do you just, you just move beyond it? No, usually within you there's that cry for justice. There's the desire for equity. Should God not want that as well? And, and do you not see the discontentment with your sin? Do you not see the discontentment with the life that you're pursuing these things and they're not producing for you? Hosea speaks to that. He says this, he says, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. 
In other words, they're doing all this work, but they're not getting anything for it. Is that you? That's the nature of sin. Sin makes us unhappy. Sin leaves us discontented. Sin always leaves us feeling hungry. Problem is, we usually go to the same table to try to fill up, but we can't get hungry. So this is the nature of sin that he brings against the, against the nation of Israel. But then look, you're going to see the other theme running through this is the judgment. So we go from the identification of sin to the warning of judgment. Now listen, he warns judgment because he loves. You see this in the names of the children. If you were to continue reading, he names his three kids. The first kid is Jezreel. Jezreel really was a, was a name that was representative of, of much of the ugliness of Israel's history. And God gives names to these children to show them the judgment will come if they don't repent. Jezreel would be like naming your child Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Chernobyl. That's what it would be like. He's telling them, this is what's coming to you if you don't repent. He has a girl. The second child is a girl. And her name is No Pity. That God is moving to a place of drawing the line where the compassion will stop. There is that line. That The third child is not my people. They're moving to that place where the intimate relationship with Israel will be severed. These names are warnings for the people to turn and repent. That's what the call, the Hebrew word is shuv. It's this turning away from that draw that we have to the world. That's what he's calling for, that we would be a people separate and holy unto himself. But I want to put a little twist on the judgment, because when we think about the judgment of God, we do kind of make it you know, more sterile, more clinical. He's sitting on the throne, and he does, and he just brings forth judgments in accordance with crimes, as if there's no relationship. I want that to be far, far from our minds. The judgment that he warns is much more remedial. It's not like a, a distant judge who is unknown to the criminal, and just bringing the letter of the law without any sense of feeling or emotion. Now, if you read Hosea, you're going to see more of the emotions of God than probably in most any other book. It's like a parent bringing about punishment. The parent isn't looking to hurt the child. The parent is looking to instruct the child so that the child doesn't continue to go in the way of destruction. The parent wants to love the child. This is kind of the judgment of God. He wants to draw us to repentance because he wants us to have fullness of love and satisfaction in joy. And he knows that the path we're on cannot lead it. It just leads. It's like drugs. It le- I need more. And then the high isn't as high as the last high. And then I need more. And then that high isn't as high as the last high, so I need more. And this, this life of discontentment, and that's what he is bringing the warning of judgment for. Listen to Hosea. Plead with the people in chapter 6. He says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up. Boy, if you don't hear an echo in what God is going to do fully in that verse, so that we may live before him, because that's where our joy will be. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. 
His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Friends, do you recognize the seriousness of our sin? Do you pass over these warnings of Scripture? Do you, do you lift yourself out of these indictments? I mean, look at the covenant you have with your wife or your husband or your friendships. How are your words? Do you speak with truth? Do you speak with love? Do you practice deceit? Are you fair in the marketplace? Do you have angry thoughts that lead to murderous ideas? Are you bitter towards people? The call is to repent, to turn from your sin, to repent, to ask God for forgiveness. That repentance is really the answer to God's judgment. And when I speak about repentance, I'm not talking about just feeling bad. I, all of, most of us do that. And I'm not even speaking about expressing words that I'm sorry. That's not really a biblical repentance. You know, even in the nation of Israel at this time, they practiced what you could call a superficial repentance. They repented before God because they were afraid of what God would do. You know that kind of repentance? You don't want God to bring the boom down heavier on you, and so you quickly turn so as to avert the consequences of the very sin that you committed? That is not repentance. That may be the beginning of it, but then it will be revealed as not true. What repentance is, is it's a confession of our sin most appropriately before the consequences fall. It's a confession of the specific sin. It's a confession of the person that I've sinned against. It's making restitution where that has to be made. But fundamentally, it's turning away from the sin and it's turning to God. It's not just making promises to myself, I won't do it again. It's seeking God for that grace and mercy that I need because I will do it again unless he gives me help. This is what he's calling us to do. This is why the prophets are relevant for us today because this applies to us. If you're a Christian here, we practice repentance. That's why you're always notified the week before this table. Reconcile your relationships. Repent of your sins. Repent to God. Repent to others. Turn from them that you can come to this table in a worthy manner. Not perfect, but repentant. Nobody comes to this table perfect. We just come repentant, sorrowful over our sin because we have chosen another lover. And if you're not a Christian here, this is how you become a Christian. We repent of our sins. We see that we have loved, and we are still hungry for that real love. That's why Augustine says, my soul finds no rest until it finds rest in thee. Only God will give us that satisfaction. The lust and the joy of sin, of which we've all tasted and we know, never satisfies for long. It, there's pleasure, no doubt, but it's only for a moment. So we have the sin identified, we have the warnings, but it's a remedial warning, it's a loving warning, it's a father warning. And then we see here, of course, the restoration. I just want to read to you a few of the verses because it's not the end of the story. And in all the prophets, I want your eyes to be just focused on seeing all the times that he promises you to return and he'll accept you, he'll welcome you, love you. God is pictured as a passionate lover 
You'll, you'll read in these pages, his heart has been wounded by our infidelity. But he remains open and loving of us. Listen, in chapter 1, he says this, Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Chapter 2, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is God speaking to us. He'll allure us. You'll see him in every chapter. Let me jump ahead for the sake of time. Chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings. But listen to what he says. That's what they're doing. Here's his heart towards us. O Ephraim, how can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. Or in chapter 14, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. This is the promise. But you know what happens to Israel. Northern Israel gets carted off to Assyria. They get taken to exile, which is a picture of all of us who are in exile away from God. But he is unilaterally moving to bring about repentance. Do you not notice that? When you read through it, you're going to see he moves to them over and over and over. And it seems as if they just there's nothing that will cause them to repent. Even the threat of divine punishment doesn't seem to turn them. You're left thinking, the only way that I'm going to repent is if God comes and helps me to repent, enables me to repent, actually gives me what I don't have so that I can do what I can't do, which is repent to God. And that's what we see here. There's a unilateral initiative of God towards us, moving in us, that we can actually muster up the words, oh, forgive me, God. And he does this by sending a son for us, this unilateral act. And you see this in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Afterward the children of Israel shall return, that is, from the exile, and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in the fear of the Lord and in the goodness of these and to his goodness in these latter days. In other words, in Christ we see that they return to him. You see this because Matthew in chapter 2 says, Out of Egypt I called my son. He's referencing the story. When Hosea sat out of Egypt, Hosea was reminding them of God's deliverance from Egypt. But when Matthew uses it, he's saying that's a picture of what Christ is going to do. But Christ's deliverance is greater than that. And not only is he delivering us out of sin, but he's leading us to God. He's delivering us out of death. This is why Paul takes the passage in Hosea 13. And he says this, in Hosea 13 we read, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where is your plague? O death, where is your sting? Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians. This is the beauty of Christ. The warning for us is in the last line. He says this in verse 9 of the last chapter, Whoever is wise, 
Let him understand these things. This is probably the editor of all of Hosea's writings. He's pulling it together, and he's putting this little end note. He says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. There is good advice. But the transgressors will stumble in them. There's a rock. There's a house that's built upon a rock, and there's a house that's built upon the sand. If you hear the words of Jesus and do them, you're like that house built upon the rock. If you hear the words of Jesus and you don't do them, you're like the house built upon the sand. Whoever is wise, but transgressors will stumble in them. Let me pray for us.